0: How many of you read ahead and looked at the passage that we would go through this morning? Did did you ask yourself, how in the world is he going to do this? You know, 27 names in 16 verses. Just so you know, I asked myself the same question when I looked at these verses as well. How in the world am I going to create a sermon out of essentially 27 names And I think if we're honest, most of the time, if we're reading through Romans, we hit this section and we just breeze right past those names and get to the end of the letter. But I think if we do, we really miss out on some very important truths. Probably the main truth that just stands out to me is the fact that discipleship is built upon relationships. I mean, That's crystal clear in this passage. As I said in Communion, Our relationship with the Lord cannot be separated from our relationship with one another. And we see that being played out in our verses this morning. But if I were honest, I'd also tell you that this is not how I've often viewed the Apostle Paul. I've never, at least in my mind, seen him as necessarily relationally gifted. I've always kind of viewed him as like a missionary maverick who just kind of did things on his own. That's just the picture I've had in my mind. But obviously, the picture is wrong, because when we look at our passage this morning, we can see that Paul's desire was to do ministry not just to people, but through people. People that he developed strong bonds of relationship with that lasted for years and years long. Once again, as I said this morning, we tend to privatize our faith. But Paul wants us to see that discipleship is based upon relationships. It's really not about, as we often make it today, methods and and strategies for discipleship. It ultimately is about relationships with people. It's really not that complicated. People from different backgrounds and experiences with unique gifts and abilities, who as we Learn from the Philippians who stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So I'll admit this message will be a little bit unorthodox compared to what we normally do because we got to work through these 27 names. But I hope that you won't just see it as a group of names, that you will allow it to paint a picture for you of what God designed The church to be. Whereas Brian said last week, every member is a minister and called into a community of believers who collectively carry out the work of Christ, knowing that our affection for one another ultimately is a reflection of our affection for Jesus. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this, That we cannot claim to follow Jesus apart from a life of discipleship engaged meaningfully in relationships. That's who we are as God's people. That's our defining characteristic. That's the great commission that applies to every person in God's family. As we say in our vision statement, we are a gospel-centered family committed to worshiping God, loving people, and making disciples. That, that should be at the core for all of us of what it means to live and abide in Christian community. And I think you'll see a picture of that this morning as we look at these verses together. Before we do, let me open our time in prayer. Father, we admit that when we look at passages like this, often we breeze right past them but if every word in scripture is inspired by your spirit to be good for edification and important for us to learn then these names mean something they represent people in street demonstrate discipleship and ministry lord i pray that as we walk through this passage together that maybe we'll see ourselves in some of these names but hopefully that we will see our church being represented as a a cross-section of who we are called to be as God's people. Lord, by your spirit and through your word, would you just allow that to happen as we work through this together this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 16. If you would, read with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes as he kind of closes this letter, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Chantria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever she may need from you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So Paul begins this letter by commending a woman named Phoebe. He highlights her with three descriptions. He calls her a sister, a servant, and a helper of many. And since Paul tells the church in Rome to receive her in the Lord, it's very likely that Phoebe is the one who is carrying Paul's letter that he has written, that we have been going through together, to the church in Rome. She's the one that's delivering the letter to the Romans. So clearly, Phoebe is a trusted partner in ministry for Paul. As a sister in Christ, she's a a member of God's family through her faith in Christ. And and I believe that this is a title that, that elevates her to where she is not somehow less than Paul, but she is in fact equal with Paul. Some have often criticized the Apostle Paul when they look at the New Testament and say, well, he didn't didn't hold women in high regard. Well, they don't read passages like this to come to that kind of a conclusion because clearly he does. He holds her in great value. He's entrusted this letter to her to deliver to the church in Rome. He says that she's not his daughter. She's his sister, a fellow worker in the faith. Paul says that she's a servant in the church in Chantria, which is a city about seven miles east of Corinth. And we don't know exactly what her role might have been in that church, but clearly she is a minister of mercy. We know that because Paul says that she is a helper of many. Her life was devoted to helping other people. And now she's proving to be helpful to Paul. And to be honest, she's helpful to you and I as well, Right? I mean, how many of you have benefited in some small way, perhaps, from our study in Romans over the last year? I hope everyone has, right? Well, we can thank God for how he used Phoebe to help make that possible, because we have this letter having been delivered by her. She was an important part of the ministry of the church, and Paul begins by recognizing her. Look at how he continues in, Verse 3. He says, Greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. Now, let me pause there and just kind of focus on Priscilla and Aquila. We know a little bit more about this couple, they're married we see them being mentioned in Acts chapter 18. There's where we learn that they originally lived in Rome, but like many of the Jews, they were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius, and so they had to flee literally for their lives, and they end up in Corinth where they met Paul because they shared the same trade. They were tent makers, and so they met Paul doing that same work together in a apparently became good friends because we also learned that, that Priscilla and Aquila invited Paul into their home and he lived with them. And, and I expect during that time, at the very least, he discipled them in the faith and very possibly even led them to a faith in Jesus Christ. And so they had developed a close relationship with him, so close that they formed this bond, this heart for ministry. To the point that when Paul left Corinth and went on to Ephesus to continue his ministry on his way back to Jerusalem, Priscilla and Aquila went with him. And not only did they go with him, but they engaged in ministry there in Ephesus even after Paul left. And they followed his example likely of what they received from him by discipling other people as well. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24, it says this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, that name sound familiar? Significant in ministry in the New Testament from what we learn. It says, there's a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in my mind, what Priscilla and Aquila likely did is formed a relationship with Apollos and probably discipled him over time. And we know that's significant because of the ongoing ministry that Apollos would have, not just in Ephesus, but a significant impact in the church in Corinth. Paul says that this couple often risked their lives for him. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but very likely they were probably flogged for their faith just like Paul was. They were probably thrown in prison or at least persecuted in some way for standing alongside Paul, who had really become kind of an enemy of the state They were likely run out of synagogues. They were probably blacklisted by the religious leaders, all of these things true for Paul, likely true for them as they stood beside him. And yet they always remained faithful in their faith. Apparently, from what we gather here, they've moved back to Rome, where they originally lived, probably after Claudius was killed. Many of the Jews returned to Rome at that time. So This was a couple who worked in a trade, but whose life was dedicated to ministry. Did you get that? This is a person, people who had a job, who had a trade, who made a living with their hands as tent makers, but their life was devoted to ministry, developing relationships, engaged in discipleship. So much so that when they did return to Rome, the church in Rome actually met in their house. That was where the people gathered and assembled as a family, is in their house. If you look at their story, the same thing happened in Ephesus. So clearly, this is a remarkable couple whose life was dedicated to ministry. Let's go to the next one in verse 5. Paul says, Greet Eponetus, my beloved who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. So clearly, this is the first person that Paul led to faith in Asia. What this tells us is that Paul didn't convert people, didn't just share the gospel and see some people come to faith and just move on to the next one. He clearly developed relationships and likely discipled those as he spent time with people. Paul wasn't counting converts to validate his ministry, which is often what we see happening in our world today. If you look at a lot of the missions uh, websites, what you're going to find are a lot of numbers. (laughs) They talk about uh, all the people that they, the number of people that they shared the gospel with, the the number of people who came to faith, the the number of churches that they established, the, the numbers, the numbers, the numbers. And they do that to validate their ministry many times because we, as consumers, feel like they need to prove their worth in order to earn our money. So in some ways, we've forced them into that corner. But that's not what we see with Paul. Discipleship is based on relationships. I, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine How many people Paul must have led to faith during his life of ministry? Can you imagine that? All the cities that he went to and all the people that he engaged with. And yet, he still remains connected with the very first convert in Asia and calls him out by name. I don't know about you, but that is remarkable to me in a telling story of what we should all be about, was we make disciples that are built on meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Apparently, Ephanatus is involved in ministry as well, because he's now moving from Asia, where he was, to be involved in the church in Rome. And I don't know that this is the case, but because of the connection there in Ephesus with Uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Maybe he went with them. They're, They're the kind of people that seems to just kind of take others along with them. So that's at least possible. But there's a pattern that we see being played out all over Scripture where a relationship is developed. Someone makes a decision to put their faith in Christ. They then grow in a relationship built around discipleship. And then they engage in a Lifetime of ministry, okay? And I want you to understand that this is not the exception in Scripture. This is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life, to to be in a discipleship relationship, to, to grow in your faith and be engaged in a lifetime of ministry. It's the normal Christian life from a biblical perspective. Now, we have to answer the question if that reflects the normal of Christian life for us. But I can assure you, biblically, it is the normal Christian life as God intended. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Now, this one's interesting to me because Mary was a very common name during that time. It typically was a name given to a Jewish woman But Paul, all he does, the only way he identifies her is, greet Mary who works hard for you. So out of all the people, they're going to know who this one is because she is the one who is consistently, repeatedly serving the needs of others as more important than her own. That's her distinguishing characteristic. What an honor, right? To be known to faithfully serve in that way. We've got people in our church who, at least from my experience, are the very same. People like Doug Kennedy and Lance Landusky and David Boing. These are men, at least for me, literally this morning, I called two of these men up and I said, look, I think my water heater went out. My garage is flooded. Can you help me? And both of them said, absolutely, we'll take care of it after church. They're just like Mary. You will know them because they work hard for you. They serve faithfully without question. But really, it's important to understand that this is, shouldn't be something unique to just a few individuals. This should be a trademark characteristic of all Christians. We serve, we come not to be served, but to serve, right? That's the example we see in Jesus. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So we should go and do the same as we love sacrificially and serve one another. Look at how Paul continues in verse eight, or verse seven. Greet Andronicus and Genus, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Uh, this is likely another husband and wife team, kind of like uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Who are actively involved in ministry. So much so that Paul says they were fellow prisoners with him. Likely arrested for sharing Christ, being involved in some work of ministry in their community. We know that these are mature believers because Paul says that they've been following Christ longer than he has. Right? And so... These are disciples that were early, maybe even converted through the ministry of Jesus. We, we don't know. But they are mature believers who are highly regarded by the apostles. Perhaps even commissioned by the apostles in the ministries that they're involved in. And somewhere along the way, they have connected with Paul and joined him as fellow workers in ministry together. Look at verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Sacchus, my beloved. I group these names together because these are actually common names given to slaves. These are very common names during that time given to those who worked as slaves. And even though they might have been low on the social ladder... Paul greets them and holds them in high regard. He calls them beloved. He calls them fellow workers. He's validating their work of ministry, despite their low social status, is that of being equal to his as an apostle. It didn't matter what their social status was. They're citizens of heaven. They're members of the family of God. They belong to the king. I don't know of any higher status that you can have as a believer. Now look at verse 10. Greet Apollos, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, I think this may be on the other side of the spectrum because I think these are names of the social elite The reason I say that is because prominent people were often identified by their family names. Aristobulus was the name of Herod the Great's grandson. We also know through history that Narcissus' family was deeply connected to the Emperor Claudius in Rome. These are social elite, but what we see here is that they're ministering right alongside social outcasts. (laughs) Do you see that? From the church's perspective, there's no distinction that we apply to people in our culture. There's there's no levels of importance or any rank of Christianhood. But they're equal. They're brothers. They're sisters. They're fellow workers in Christ. They belong to the same family. Because Christianity breaks down all the class distinctions that we see in our culture. We are one in Christ, members of the household of God, equally valuable to him and important in the work of ministry that he's called us to. Now look at verse 12. Greet Tryphanea and Tryphosa, the workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. These are three women. Um, These are women's names. The first two probably are Twins. The, the first name means dainty. The second name means delicate. So this is dainty and delicate, right? Can you imagine this being a brother? These are my sisters, dainty and delicate. <laughs> but notice that Paul doesn't, uh, doesn't use those terms to describe their ministry. He says they work hard. Not dainty and delicate. They work hard in ministry. They are devoted to ministry. They are devoted to discipleship. They they work hard despite what their names may be. Look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mind. The next one's interesting because there might be a connection specifically to the life of Jesus. We we all know the story of the man who carried uh, Jesus' cross, right, on the way to the crucifixion. Simon the Cyrene. Everybody remember that. Well, listen to how he's described in Mark chapter fifteen, verse twenty-one. Says they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of here it is Alexander and Rufus. Rufus to bear his cross. Now, given the fact that Mark's gospel was written to Gentiles, many of whom were in Rome. A lot of scholars believe that this is the same Rufus being described as Simon the Serene's son. And not only did he come to faith, but his mother has as well. And there, again, was a deep relationship that was developed there because Paul says that she treats me as a son as if I were her own. That's an intimate connection that he's describing there. Now look at verse 14. Greet Ensocritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, his sister, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, these last names were kind of made into groups. There's one group. And it's followed by saying, all the brethren with them, and then another group, and then it says, and all the brethren with them. And so very likely, these are small groups of believers who are living in community with one another. So that discipleship, again, is being carried out within small groups of people. And Paul finishes by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. And it's important to understand that this is more than just a common greeting. He didn't say greet one another with a handshake, which would have been more of the common greeting. Instead, there's a distinctive characteristic among God's people that they greet each other in the intimacy of a kiss, of an embrace, of an affectionate relationship between one another. These are not acquaintances. These are family members. I mean, can you imagine going up to your parents and saying, it's good to see you this morning. I'm, I'm glad you're here shaking their hand, no, you would embrace them because they're family, and we are family. And Paul is saying when we come together, that embrace should be a reflection of the deep relationship that we have one another as a family of believers. So as we look back on the the names that are listed and the people that are represented in this passage I want you to see how really remarkable this is. And to do that, I want to highlight three things that stood out to me when when I looked at this together, I mean, in preparation. The first one is this. Look at the variety that's represented in this list, okay? Notice the variety. We see men, women, singles, married, young, old, slave, free, social elite. Some are young in their faith. Some are mature in their faith, even more so than Paul himself. There are Greeks. There are Romans. There are Jews. We see that they're engaged in ministry in the workplace, in their neighborhoods, in their synagogues, even in prisons. They represent multiple cities throughout the Roman Empire that have come together to gather as a family, as a church in Rome. And when you put all this together, you see this tapestry of ministry with one thing in common. They all put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they have devoted themselves to a life of ministry, building deep relationships of discipleship wherever they are, whether that's making tents, whether that's ministering to their neighbors, whatever that may be, this is who they are. Every member is a minister involved in ministry in a variety of ways. But as we also see in this context, they do it in relative obscurity, right? We may know more about some than others, but the fact of the matter is we know very little about any of them. These are the names of the mostly unknown. We have limited understanding. These are people who are quietly and yet profoundly impacting the world for Christ. It reminds me of Mark Dever. He's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist, and they do a pastor's conference every year. And one year, I remember somebody asked him about how he kind of got all these big-time preachers and, and, and pastors to be speakers. And he said, the, the question was, how do you get the best of the best? And he says, well, we don't. So we get the ones that most people know, but the best preachers, nobody even knows their name. They're the ones behind the scenes quietly and yet profoundly impacting the world for Christ. That's what we see on this list. Some have ministries that rival the apostles, but we still don't know much of their story. All we know is that they are faithful disciples who go and make disciples. That's the mission of their life. We see variety, we see obscurity, but we also see sincerity. These, these are people who are not just playing games with God. They're not just claiming to be a Christian, but carrying on life is normal. They don't show up on church on Sunday and call it good until they get around to the next Sunday and then they can check the card again. These are people who are Deeply connected through meaningful relationships of intentional discipleship. And listen to me again. This is normal Christian life. Not the exception. They're not outside the norm. The Bible is describing this group of people as the biblical norm. This is what the church is supposed to look like. And so let me close with this. In the end, This is a list that should describe us. This is a list that should describe us. These 27 people represent a cross-section of the Christian church. Fellow workers, beloved brethren, faithful disciples. They experience the joys and clearly the sufferings of life together. They're not the exception of the Christian life. These people are the norm. And the only way that makes sense to us is if we are captured by the deep affection that Jesus has for us. See, these people didn't do ministry out of obligation because it's what they were supposed to do. These people did ministry out of gratitude because it's what they wanted to do. They couldn't think of anything else they would rather do but devote themselves to a life of ministry. These are people who gave their life away because they understood Jesus gave their li- his life for them. That's who they are, and that's who we should be. So we need to be honest with ourselves here. If we truly understand all that Jesus did for us, is there anything that we wouldn't do for him? And I think our gut reaction is to say, oh, no, we wouldn't, but think about that for a second before you answer too quickly. Is there anything that he may be calling you to that you put on some list that says, I'll do anything but fill in the blank? Is there anything you wouldn't do for him after recognizing all that he's done for you? Not begrudgingly, but joyfully, enthusiastically, not for your own recognition, but for his glory. That's what's represented in these 27 names. And that's who we are called to be as well. Every single member is a minister. Called into a community of believers who collectively carry out the work of Christ. It's true for them, and it's equally true for us. Our affection for others is a reflection of our affection for Jesus. We cannot separate the two. They're deeply tied to each other. So remember, we are a gospel-centered family committed to worshiping God, loving others, and making disciples. This is the normal Christian life, and it should be the core of who we are as a church community, as a family, a body of believers. So please, be committed to being deeply relational intentional in your discipleship relationships with other people. It's who we're called to be. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we do have to share life together as a family. Thank you for not sending us out on our own. Even when you sent the disciples out, you sent them out in pairs because you knew that they needed that relationship with one another as they carried out ministry together. It was always intended. You even walked with 12 men that you engaged in life with and shared ministry with. So, Lord, help us to look at these examples, including the example of our passage this morning, where you give us a snapshot, a picture of what the church is called to be. And I pray that that in every one of those names, that we would see those things represented right here in our own family, and that we would be compelled Because of all that you have done for us to devote our lives in discipleship relationships for you, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in the midst of the joys as well as the suffering of life. Lord, we want to do this well, and we only can do that when your spirit is working in us. So we submit to you, and we pray this in your name, amen. Well, I did it. Sermon of 27 names. (laughs) Do you know my secret other than the obvious without the Holy Spirit? None of that's possible. But here's the strategy that I had. When I thought about, when I looked at those names, I thought about you. I thought, I know who the Marys are in our church who are known by their service. I know who the couples are who so faithfully minister together. When you see one, you see the other, and they're always serving people. I know who the mature believers are who have been walking with the Lord so much longer than I have that I so admire, and I look at their life, and I think, man, I want to be just like them. So when I looked at those 27 names, I thought of 200 people that really represent those names But as we all know, there are ways that we can all grow in faithfulness, right? There there are places in our life that we can serve better, serve more faithfully, more sacrificially. And so I hope that this morning would be an encouragement to be those people, just to live that life of discipleship together. And so let me practically, here's something I want you to consider. I cheated. I looked ahead next week. Next weekend is supposed to be actually pretty nice. I think there must be a front coming in because the weather is predicted to be kind of cool. And I would love for us just to gather on the front lawn and be a family together. There's no program, by the way. We don't have any plans of anything special that we do other than share time together, build relationships with one another, and be a family. So I hope you'll consider that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for this family. Thank you for all the words of Scripture that are inspired by your spirit and have purpose and worth and value, including the 27 names that we walked through this morning that represent a cross-section who we are called to be as a church body ourselves. People who serve. People who sacrifice. People whose lives center around meaningful relationships of discipleship because they are fulfilling what you've called us to be to go and make disciples. So Lord, may we be a gospel-centered family, committed to worshiping you, to loving others, and to making disciples through meaningful relationships. May we be intentional even this week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.